Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Artists from Redbubble last year earned $67 million. I don't think that there is an organisation, public or private in Australia, from which visual artists earned more last year than from Redbubble. When entrepreneur Martin Hosking co-founded Redbubble with a couple of mates in 2006, he wanted to ensure that this time, this online startup would be as far removed from the heady and intoxicating but savage roller coaster ride experienced in the dot com boom bust of the early 2000s. He had ridden that wave with a market darling called LookSmart, whose stock went sky high only to come down with a thud. Martin Hosking learned a lot from that bruising, mainly that genuine purpose and good governance should be embedded from the beginning. He and his team have now built Redbubble, based in Melbourne, into one of the world's largest art and design online marketplaces, with offices also in San Francisco, New York and Berlin. Around $400 million in sales went through the Redbubble website last year and over half a million visual artists sold their designs on the site in the past year alone. When COVID lockdown hit, the journey got a bit hairier for a moment. But in the past few months, Redbubble has thrived, along with many companies in the digital space. And Redbubble's share price, well, it skyrocketed too, rather massively catapulting Hosking's personal wealth. How does he deal with all that? Well, take a listen. Martin Hosking, welcome to Build It Thou Come. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Helen. Delighted to be here. Now, for those people who might have been living under a rock, what is Redbubble? What do you do? So Redbubble is a very large art and design marketplace, and the way in which it works is that artists upload images onto Redbubble, and then when a consumer wants one of those images on one of the 117 different products which we have right now, everything from jigsaw puzzles to face masks to T-shirts, they will order it and then it will be manufactured by one of our partners. At the moment, Uh, We had 511,000 selling artists last year uh, and just on $400 million of sales went through the market. So it's a very large website, many millions of images and uh, 6.8 million consumers also bought from it, as I mentioned. So it's also very global. So if you haven't heard of it, it's probably because we are very global. 95% of the sales are outside of Australia. So while we're based here, the original uh, starting point was here in Melbourne. We maintain offices in San Francisco, uh, New York, and Berlin as well. So Oh, it's amazing. Quite a few more have the designs on their site, but uh, 511,000 artists sold last year. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And so artists from Redbubble last year earned $67 million. I don't think that there is an organisation, public or private in Australia, from which visual artists earned more last year than from Redbubble. So of the things which I am proud of, certainly right up there is the fact that we've been able to support uh, visual artists and particularly during this period because I think for many of them during the last little period of time, having another source of income has been very important. So that's uh, it does give me some satisfaction to have uh, had that impact. Yeah. And when you say last year, are you talking financial year 1920? Financial year. The financial year which has just ended, sorry. Uh, so the, that ended in um, – 
And it's 30th of June. Yeah. Oh, look, that's amazing. We'll go back to some of uh, certainly your relationship with artists. But so you're essentially a marketplace. You put designers and graphic artists' designs and drawings on your site. End consumers can access those, be it, as you say, a new T-shirt or a phone case or clothing. You put the artist together with the end user, but you also get the manufacturing or the production of the thing done. How does Redbubble actually make its revenue? So the way in which we we make it our revenue is that the uh, artist puts uh, something on the site. They then set whatever markup they like. So on average, it's about 20%. And do you charge them? Uh, no, they, they set that. So the artist says, I've got this product. I want to sell it for, say, $30 for a T-shirt. And they say, of that, I will collect, say, $6. Right. So that's that goes to the artist. The remaining $24, we have a relationship with fulfillers all over the world. There's uh, currently 40-odd fulfillers all over the world. And when somebody buys something from the site, the uh, fulfiller gets paid and we get uh, we get, ha- take our take at the end of that. So after the artist is paid and after the fulfiller is paid, Redbubble then gets uh, our take at the end of all of that. Right. And the fulfiller could be a little production house, a little T-shirt manufacturer, a a big company? It could be. Typically, they're bigger than those. So given the size of the site, you need to be operating at a reasonable scale to be able to fulfill for Redbubble. So most of the fulfillers will have quite a few employees. So right now, there's about 300 employees at Redbubble itself. Within the fulfillers, there'll be quite a few thousand employees within the fulfillers as a group. And most of them will have uh, quite a few machines and quite sophisticated operations. Yeah. Because of the way in which the site works, everything is produced on demand for an individual customer. So they're not holding any inventory. So a, somebody will order a T-shirt and then the te- very sophisticated technology, which is called print-on-demand technology, that T-shirt will then be uh, printed on for that customer at that point. So these are quite Brilliant. expensive technology to, to make this happen. We have fulfillers here in Australia and all the fulfillers, uh, I say, are, are close to our marketplaces. So they're in the United States, the UK, Australia and Canada, and each of those uh, fulfillers uh, will serve their local marketplace. Yeah. So how have you managed through the COVID-19 crisis? I mean, firstly, the crisis of March, April and May 2020, and now I guess it's, it's almost like the new normal of ongoing COVID restrictions, the uncertainty of not only when this will end, but how this will end for the community, for companies, for the economy. How have you been managing? Uh, for us, it's been a sort of a, a tale in two parts. Yeah. So in mid-March, when the COVID crisis first hit, it was very unsure what would actually transpire. And like everybody else, we sort of retreated into retreated a fair bit. That was the time of the toilet paper hoarding and those sorts of things, which we all remember. As it began to be clearer that the world wasn't actually going to come to an end, we have t- it's been an advantage. Red bubble. So we've our growth has accelerated through from really the beginning of April. We'd already been enjoying strong growth as a company in a sort of thirty percent year on year as we've gone through the. Uh, last quarter and into this year, we're seeing growth north of 100% year on year. So wow. it's, and that reflects 
fact that people are looking for things which are a bit more meaningful. They're shopping at home. That's an advantage to us. And then they're also looking for things which uh, speak to them more directly. And we've also been able to get our product, which they really do want, such as face masks. Uh, so the flexibility which we have has been an advantage to us. So we're one of those small number of Australian companies which has been advantaged by the situation with COVID. Yeah. Now, is that something that you couldn't actually foresee? Oh, I don't think you could foresee it. No, in, in the beginning of March, I, no, I don't think we, like everybody else, didn't really know what the, the future would hold. It has always, in these sorts of circumstances, a good deal of preparation had gone in, but the actual events which transpired, we couldn't foresee. And by that, I mean, we had a very diversified network of fulfillers. Uh, so it wasn't just one fulfiller. Those fulfillers were close to the customers. So that was an advantage. So at no time did we stop shipping because it was print on demand. Mm. We weren't carrying inventory. So the natural advantages which we had were then able uh, to be played on through the COVID crisis. Yeah. So it's really been extraordinary, hasn't it? And maybe if someone had had time to think about it, although it all hit so quickly, the way online businesses in particular have not only survived but are flourishing in many respects and you fall into that category. I mean, I guess after an initial nervousness about what COVID might mean for your business, when did you first realise that actually you were not only going to be okay in this crisis but that you might even grow and boom? Really, relatively quickly. Was there one moment? There sort of was. In mid-March, we went, the entire organisation went to working from home from 10th of March. So we were able to do that quite early. And I can remember those first weeks when everybody was just, as I say, stocking up on toilet paper and drinking water. It was very unclear that they would be buying anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> Again, and very unclear what the future would be be. But by about the first or second week, it was already clear that human beings, we do want richer, fuller lives. And so they were beginning to pick up their shopping on the site. And so at that point, we were getting a little bit more confident that the reality for Redbubble would be uh, considerably better than, than it would be for many others. And that was, uh, you know, we're very grateful for that. Yeah. Was there one particular note from a customer or something when it hit you? Oh my God, we're actually going to be really okay. The thing which, which, which really sparked it for me was I was concerned that the fulfillment network may not survive. It was not clear that shipping, that, that the factories would continue working, which we work with the fulfillment partners, that the shipping would occur. And I got a report in from our head of logistics, who, which just showed the diversity of the network meant that even if one fulfiller closed down, and we did have that situation in the United States where there would be a lockdown and so we'd lose a partner for a period of time. There was still enough resilience to survive. And I got a report in from him one day and I thought, well, I looked at that and I said, okay, we're going to be okay because that was for us the biggest threat was we actually wouldn't be able to continue to ship. And that would have been, uh, that would have meant the world really was in a very dire place indeed because it would mean that people weren't actually able to buy the basics of, uh, of food and medicine mm. and uh, clothing and so forth, which, which, which they can get from Red bubble. Yeah. We will go back to the beginning of Redbubble a little bit later, but let's stick with sort of COVID and the last sort of six months. You only came 
back into the CEO role, the chief executive role, for the second time in what, mid to late February, just as COVID was really hitting. How difficult a transition did that have to be? I mean, thrust back, not only to run the company that you founded and loved and had been on the board, but thrust back into a world crisis within weeks. It has been uh, the most exciting six months, and I don't use the word exciting uh, in a truly positive sense. It has, uh, it certainly had some positive elements to it, but it's also been uh, perhaps a little bit more exciting than I would have liked. The great advantage I had, though, in coming back into the role was uh, that I knew the company very well. The fundamental issues had not changed. Uh, good work had been going on as well, and. Most importantly, I knew all of the team. The only person who I hadn't had a good relationship or hadn't had a had an existing relationship with was the chief financial officer. But everybody else in the senior executive team, I had known uh, and I knew well. And so the working relationships we established went very smoothly. In addition, I had a very good relationship with the board. Uh, and so I think that that's what makes a difference. If you if if it had been completely new, mm. thoroughly new context, I just think it would been almost impossible. So what's been the most important thing in your organisation to deal with and get right in this past five, six months? The most important thing in the particular context of the last six months has been dealing with extraordinarily high levels of demand and demand for new product types which didn't exist on Redbubble prior, particularly I'm thinking of face masks. So that's required real agility and focus from the company to make sure we can deliver as good a customer experience as possible in a very difficult set of environments. So not all of that's within our control. So the shipping and the postal services have been under a great deal of strain. And so trying to make sure that the customers have reasonable expectations of when they get things has been hard, making sure that we uh, have got out the new products in a timely fashion and that they are fit for purpose has been hard. I think that's been the single most difficult thing from an external point of view. From an internal point of view, while we were advantaged in working from home because we had the system set up and we decided to work from home very early on in, in, you know, prior to anybody else doing mm. it, well before it had been mandated, I think it is just the challenge of working from home is hard for people, particularly for extended periods of time. That lack of contact, that lack of uh, celebration, the lack of commiseration, all of that is, I think, is, is puts a strain on individuals. And so I think dealing with the uh, emotional well-being of the work of, of everybody at Redbubble has been a challenge for me, but also a challenge for everybody, of course. Yeah. What have you learnt about your own teams? in this period? I have learned that they they can get the job done. I think there had been a perception previously that working from home would somehow be uh, be a mandate for you know significantly reduced productivity, as the economists would say. You mean slacking off? Slacking off, as the rest of us would say. Was that a perception in your mind? I mean, were you one of those bosses who did think, oh, well, if I can't see them, maybe they're not working hard enough? I think I was unsure. I was unsure, I think, is, is the truth of the matter. And I, and that's inevitably the case. And particularly, I think, in the current environment where people are not only working from home, but they're having to, they're having the children, uh, mm. you're raising children home, schooling, the pressures of partners, um, also perhaps working from home. So all of those things have meant that 
people being productive, there was a real serious risk that it, w- it would just drop off a cliff. And it hasn't. And I think that's an absolute credit to, to people that they've managed to adapt their lifestyles uh, to, to both get the work done, but then also to do those important things and making sure uh, their children are educated and their, and their, fa- and their family lives are, are, have some stability and consistency to them. So I think the fact that it did work and is working is to me, you know, one of the most important lessons. And I think as we look towards uh, what Australia will be like at the other side of this crisis, I think many more people working from home in some form or other will be a norm. I hope it's not a universal though. I do hope that we still maintain offices and that people can get into offices and have those sort of those human to human connections. Yeah. But more people working from home more often will also be a good thing. So I think that rebalancing is going to be, for me, one of the the, the more important lessons if we can take that out of the current situation. And Martin, what have you learned about yourself as a manager, as a CEO, and as someone who really needs to empower your employees in this very anxious time? The fact that I'd had 18 months out of the business meant that when I came back, I had perspective on it. Uh, I had the relationship with the board, obviously. But more importantly, I developed very good perspective on what we were doing and the meaning of it. And that's meant that despite the fact that, you know, clearly like everybody else, it's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster. But I haven't it's never thrown me completely. And so, you know, I've maintained a, a very strong meditation practice, uh, which is is very centering and stabilizing. And then I think that my decision making has come from a deeper spot where it's not just reactive. Because I think in the current environment, it's very easy to be overwhelmed by the situation as it seems to be and the crisis as it is unfolding. And good leaders in this period, and I think we have seen some quite good leaders emerging uh, in multiple levels in business and and in government and other organizations, are showing that their decision-making comes from a more centered sort of spot and a, a less immediately reactive to the situation as it, as it is, not ignoring the situation as it's unfolding, but not being overwhelmed by it either. Mm, so you mentioned meditation. I presume that means you're not a shouter. Do you put others under as much pressure as you put yourself? I mean, are you a mad workaholic? Uh, no, I, I try to be as lazy as humanly possible. <laughs> I try to delegate well. Uh, and for me, delegation is the key to being a successful leader and manager. And it's surprising how often the most basic lessons of delegation are missed. And and I'll give them <laughs> because often they're missed. You always explain why something needs to be done. What is the, what is the why about it? But then you never tell somebody both how to do it and what to do. You allow them to make – you either tell them how to do it or what to do it, not both of those things. And that gives people the autonomy and the mandate to succeed. If it's somebody who's new to the task, you will tell them how to do it. And then you will take responsibility of the final outcome. If it's somebody who's not new to the task, then you'll tell them uh, what to do and they'll take responsibility for how to do it. And I think for me, that moves you out of the situation where you shout or you you can definitely put pressure on people if the situation warrants it. But moving to shouting or to anger has never been a productive way of managing 
it's many, many years since I've shouted at work at anybody, and I will occasionally shout at a computer if it's not working well. I'm certainly not. <laughs> I'm not the Dalai Lama. I can get very, very animated with uh, physical objects when they've refused to abide by my will, <laughs> particularly computers and, and technology when it fails on me. That can, that can bring out the the less uh, sanguine Martin. But other than that, it, it actually with people, uh, I, it's never a productive uh, mode of engagement to be shouting at them. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I've was i interviewed a couple of people who worked with Bill Gates and one of the comments one of them made was that Bill doesn't really shout because if you've done the work before a project, if you've got the data, got the evidence, thought it through, planned it, and then something goes wrong, he says, well, let's look at why it went wrong where our thinking went wrong, not, you know, you're a stupid idiot. I think he, this person added that it doesn't mean he doesn't, you know, that he hasn't shouted in the past, but that yeah. that's not his way and it's not very productive. Yeah, I think that that's right with Bill. I've heard that with him before that he used to be a shouter, I believe, but has mm. sort of found a more stability uh, in his engagement. I think as you mature as a leader, it's a good place to end up where you're not a shouter, really. It's not, it's not an effective style in my view. How much meditation do you do? Do you do it every day? Uh, I do quite a lot. So it's normally 45 minutes a day wow. uh, and uh, rarely would it be less than that. And then I would aim to do a retreat for at least a week every year where I just meditate for a week on a retreat somewhere. So, uh, And that provides perspective. I think one of the things which many of us feel at the moment is, you know, the meaning of it all. And meditation is very helpful in uh, providing a sort of a centering uh, where that question becomes a little bit less angst-ridden. Does it help you think or are you saying it really gives you perspective? Perspective is, is the key for me. It does help you think in the sense that you can look at events as they're unfolding and not be so enwrapped up in them. And if you look at very effective leaders in crisis situations, that tends to be the measure of their effectiveness. And that can be, you know, terribly tense situations, which are the, the plane which crashed on the Hudson, if you saw the movie yeah. there. It, it seemed like he was just ever so slightly distant from the event as it was unfolding and could see the situation in a, a more clear-cut way. And I've also, the, the Churchill movies, which have been rolling out over the last little while, uh, it seemed at least at that time in that critical period in 1939-1940 that he had a, a calmer perspective uh, on what was actually uh, transpiring. And that I think is what meditation helps you provide. So in a sense, it gives you perspective, but it also does mean you tend to think a little bit better and have better decision-making in my experience. Martin, just back to the more prosaic, have you needed government help with, say, JobKeeper through this period? No, we've not received any government help at all. And 
I, I think as well, it's it's a challenging time for the government, but the Australian, and I do, can know if I can sort of segue a little bit into what the Australian government has been doing. I think that in response to the crisis, it's been commendable from all, all governments working together, but I don't think the Australian governments in general have embraced what does Australia look like as we get through the other side of this crisis and particularly what role technology can play. I think that that is still uh, something which is a challenge for, for government on multiple levels here. Mm, so would you say to them, you know, they need to think about that because as a community we need to see how perhaps technology, the digital space, can help us? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it is what I'm saying. Governments have been typically fairly shy around technology questions so the Australian Productivity Commission has often commented on this uh, and made suggestions which typically have been not followed up by the government. So I could give you many examples of that. Uh, but as a consequence of that, Australia has relatively few cutting-edge technology companies, either listed or unlisted, and those companies have been absolutely crucial to uh, the economy during this period. Uh, they provided uh, if we didn't, and I, I won't, could use the example of Redbubble, but let me use another example, uh, Kogan, the online uh, retailer. If Kogan had not been about just getting things to people and actually providing for a good consumer experience so people could be at home would not have been possible. Oh, really? So what about all those other retailers? Don't they deliver at home and you can order online well, now? Not or? nearly as efficiently as Kogan has been able to do it. Mm. And that's because Kogan's been, that's all Kogan does. So they may be catching up, but it's not been their only way of doing it. And there's a sort of a, a clarity which you get from focus. Uh, and so I think that, and I just pick on pick on Kogan, I could have picked on the other companies. I think that they're also providing for the jobs and particularly as we look forward to the future, mm. if those companies are also exporting, then they're exporting technology and high value, uh, which is really the creativity and the and the, the things which are created by human through an education system and that clearly is a, a stronger future for Australia. And I think Australian governments have not embraced that nearly as actively as they could have done so. Mm. Martin, how many employees do you have on your books, I guess, versus the artists? It, just on 300, a bit over 300 employees on the books right now. So as I say, that's in Melbourne, in San Francisco, New York and Berlin. That's fantastic. So that's, you know, that's grown quite a lot. Yes. Now, Redbubble's share price did fall dramatically in late March with COVID. I think it got to about 47 cents. But on the 20th of August, it was up to $3.55. And the AFR uh, helpfully put in that your personal stake in Redbubble in April 2020 was worth $24 million. In mid-August, it was worth $165 million. Yes. Very helpful of them. (laughs) It is very helpful of them. Is that a question? Uh, I'm not buying a yacht and sailing to Queensland, I could say that. No, probably um, not a lot of that is actually realised and sitting in your bank account. But, But it is interesting. Do you think about that incredible wealth that kind of moves around with share prices and particularly in tech? Does it weigh on you? Do you try and set it aside? For me... Uh, and I guess I'm in a fortunate position, Helen. I'm almost 60 years old. I'll be turning 60 this year. So my orientation with wealth is firstly one of gratitude. That would be 
just churlish not to feel that. Uh, but secondly, it's one of obligation and duty. I think that uh, Redbubble is still at relatively early on in, the, in its journey, and the value of the company right now is not value in anticipation. It actually reflects what has been created. And what I'm drawing the distinction here is there are a number of companies listed on the ASX and early stage companies where people are saying, in four or five years, if everything goes right, the company will be worth this much. And they start valuing it at that right now. In Redbubble's case, we've got very strong 10 years of growth. We've got demonstrated profitability, which is also growing very strongly. So what people are currently valuing the company is is on current performance, not in anticipation. So the net of all of that is that I, the way in which I think about my personal wealth and the company itself is what are our obligations to our existing stakeholders, to people I have contact with, but also beyond that to uh, how do we make sure that we that I can have as much good personal impact on as many people as possible. And that's not without being too uh, over the top about that. But it is, it's not realistic to spend that amount of money in any sensible mm. sort of way. You're almost certainly going to ruin your, your life or the life of your children if you do that. Uh, it is realistic to be able to give as much of that away in a way which has achieves effective outcomes. And that's, that's what I'm particularly focused on. Is that what you've decided to do? Give most of it away? Yeah, so we have set up a foundation. Or we've already got a, a foundation, a personal foundation called the Three Springs Foundation. It's already got quite a quite a few Redbubble shares in it. It's got and that's that's operating. And so more money going into the foundation and making contribu- contributions. The things which particularly matter to me mm. uh, is is an area of focus for me. Without being too Mother Teresa about it, I do have some personal indulgences. I am building a nice house and I'm collecting art, as you might expect given my background. But it is uh, still wanting to 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 do more than just that. Yeah. Now, you and two co-founders began Redbubble in, what, 2006. Where did the idea come from? What was the rationale? The rationale was that particularly one of my co-founders is an artist and designer, and we had some concepts about what Redbubble would become. And as we were talking to him and as we were talking to the other people in his design company, it became clear to us that what they wanted to do was they wanted to be able to sell their designs on products into a marketplace. They didn't want to have to actually make the products themselves uh, and they didn't want to actually have to create the demand for those products. So so they wanted the marketplace and they also wanted a community. So it was particularly framed around my my interactions, our interactions with him and his team. I was also had a very high interest in the role of art in society. Um, It's always been an interest of mine. And so I brought that perspective on it. said, if we do that, if we enable more artists to get the creativity out, that will be a positive impact on society. I think it is a good, and I was particularly wanting to do something which had resonance and meaning to it. And so that was where and bringing Redbubble came. And it also looked like a good business idea because of the, uh, there were many, we realized there were many artists who are in this situation were much less clear about where the demand would come from. And, and that proved to be the case. It took quite a few years of the artists uploading s- images before the actual demand started to come in any strong way. You had come from a career. I mean, you were chairman at the success story of A Connects. You'd been a management consultant at McKinsey's. 
So did you bring a lot of business knowledge? Yes, I think, and 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 the relevant background as well. There is, I've been around the internet since 1995. Mm. So, I I've been a co-founder at a company called um, uh, Looksmart, Look which was one of the early early dot com success stories. We'll get um, to that, and it rode that, <laughs> yeah, rode that way that that particular thing up and down. And I was particularly concerned as I was starting Redbubble to make sure that we had a very strong clarity of who our customers were, what we were doing for them, and the, the economics of it made sense because those weren't the characteristics of that original dot-com era, which you may yeah. recall. And so I bought that business sense to it and that also came out obviously and my background as a management consultant but also as I, what I've been seeing through the success of Aconex, which did have that clarity as well. Mm. So you brought that to the trio of founders. Let's just go back to how you, you know, then built it. How did you raise funds for it? What did it need at that early stage? Uh, so we were very fortunate because uh, Looksmart had been a success, at least for some tech investors here in Australia, they were prepared to support us early on. So we raised $2 million just on a business plan, which in 2006 was uh, not a very common thing to do. It's a bit, little bit more common now. Sorry, raised from whom? That was from high net worth individuals. So people like Simon Baker, who had been at REA, who was the CEO of, of realestate.com, yep. Su Ming Wong, who was oh, a, yeah. a, a very champ ventures. So these were high net worth yeah. individuals who were prepared to back, really back me more than anything else and back the idea. Uh, Richard Causey, who was at St. George Bank, a very uh, senior senior person there. So, uh, And he became the chair of Redbubble. So I was fortunate in having access to these um, fairly wealthy individuals and, mm. and they were very supportive of me. It's not a very common path for founders. No. Uh, we raised that $2 million early on. We Over the next few years, we raised another for $4 million. So a total of $6 million went into the company. But because the business took a while to get going, took about three years before sales really started to come. But then sales did come quite strongly. It sort of did do that J curve where it starts to get rapid sales growth once the marketplace uh, fit occurred. And by marketplace mm. fit, I mean uh, the challenge with marketplaces is they don't have any sellers and so they don't have any buyers. They don't have any buyers. They don't have any sellers. Yeah. And almost all marketplaces fail at that initial hurdle. The reason why we were able to get through it is, as I mentioned before, the artists were prepared to join and put their stuff, their content up, even though it wasn't selling. We were very, there was a great artistic community going on. So the artists would organize weekends together. Some of them got married to each other. It was was, in the very early days, it was much more a community than a marketplace. And we put a lot of effort into that community and particularly one of my my co-founder, Paul Van Zeller, who ran the design shop. He was very engaged with that community and providing a lot of uh, support and nurturing for the other artists on the website. So that got us through the first few years until the sales start happening. Once the sales start happening, more reason for artists to join and then the, the, then this, the virtuous cycle continues. Yeah. But I mean, how difficult was it scaling up? You said, you know, until you get the sellers there, just because you've got artists there doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get sellers. How much of a struggle was it and how long before you made any money out of it? Oh, it, it was very difficult for the first three years. You, three I'd years, come in, yeah. I can vividly remember going into the office on a Monday morning and just sitting in my car outside the office, just sort of 
because nothing would have happened very much. It was not, not sales weren't occurring, artists maybe joining in sort of intermittently, but actual sales occurring were very slow to occur and no real clarity about how we'd actually make it happen. This is the sort of the hurdle at which almost all marketplaces fall. Right, but how do you get over that hurdle? Do you have to climb higher on the Google list or how do you do it? Well, there was that. There was, certainly was that. Uh, and eventually the search just being around over time and having enough content. So the fact that we had a reason why artists were prepared to join, anticipate sales, even though we weren't getting sales, allowed us to get over it. So we had quite a lot of artists joining, adding quite a lot of content, and eventually Google started indexing that. So eventually it was uh, Google which provided us with our first impetus after that. We were doing some marketing, but it wasn't that effective. What really ended up being very effective, particularly when we got the right uh, search engine optimization or information architecture going, was that allowed for Google to provide uh, with, with the impetus which we needed. Yeah, when did you get that? Like, was that after that first three years? Uh, that was in about 2010. Yeah. yeah, it was three years. So we we started in second of February 2007, and it wasn't really until uh, about three years later in 2010 that sales started picking up, and they picked up quite quickly after that. You know, growth rates were very very high. You know, we could literally ma- match it on a month by month basis, or even a week by week basis from about that point. Uh, yeah. and so. But it does. It's a. It is a painful journey through to those that initial period. Yeah. Where you just have to keep at it. Emotionally, it's quite painful as well because you're not seeing any traction. Even though, and in our case, we put quite a bit of money into the marketplace at that point as well. You've talked before about the hardship that Aussie startups can face. I mean, how close is failure during the early years of any startup? And for you, mm-hmm. how often perhaps did you have to stave off failure? At Redbubble, I don't know of any startup which hasn't looked fairly deeply into the valley of death. Really, or walk very close to that brink and maybe even stepped over a, a little bit. There may be the odd exception, but most, almost all startups, and this isn't just Australian mm. startups. This is this is international. Uh, you could talk about the founder story from Airbnb is the same. The founder story of Uber is the same. Mm. All of these companies they struggle. For often for a long period of time until something kicks in. What, seeing no growth, no revenue, no users, no buyers, that's the valley of death you're talking about? That is a valley of death. It, it, it can't be all of those things. If it was all of those things, you wouldn't walk out of it. Yeah, wouldn't walk out the door. It would be so. You've got to see something positive in it. In our case, what we were seeing was positive. Was as I mentioned was the artists were still engaging. So we had a reason to come in, and they were saying nice things about us, and we we're winning awards, which was interesting as well. Uh, so there, there were those positive things going on, which enabled us to continue operating. And, and it's, it's having just enough of those positives for you to retain confidence that the negatives will eventually be addressed. And if you don't have any of those positives, then it really is time to hang up your boots. For many Australian startups, you do need some financial support almost invariably to get through that. And so having somebody who has the insight into those positives to help you through is very important. 
now I'm a partner in Blackbird Ventures, one of the uh, the, right. the, the uh, venture capital firms here, and they have people who can look at an early stage company and they can see what the positives are there, and that will give the early stage company also confidence in that, and then they'll provide the financial support, even though everything's not going well. If everything's going well, then you actually don't need the financial support, and there's very, very few companies which are like that, as I mentioned. So having a good supporter or good set set of supporters for the company who can point you to the positives and give you the confidence to go continue after the venture is critical. I don't think I'm very skeptical of the lone founder with you know mm. inherent belief and you know vision that they can brace it all themselves. I, I believe in teams. I believe in co-founders, and then around co-founders, you do need this broader support network. And I was very fortunate with the support network which I had around Redbubble. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Blackbird. I spoke on this podcast to Cameron Adams at Canva and, of course, Blackbird's been a great supporter of theirs. Yes, indeed. And and, and Blackbird uh, has been good at a, not only identifying early-stage companies. So Canva, you, you would have – the story of Canva is um, – they had quite a few years in the wilderness mm, themselves mm. before it became an overnight success. And I think that they, and Cameron has said, and Melanie has said, that the insight which Blackbird bought into their business was at least as critical as the money which they bought. Yeah. You know, it enabled them to have confidence on their trajectory and to provide them with you know, some really important skills which you need uh, and, and capabilities which you need as an early stage company. In part two of my interview with Redbubble's Martin Hosking, he talks of how close startups are to failure and how the struggle of Redbubble's early years turned into an ASX public listing, with him having two stints in the CEO role. He also pays tribute to growing up in a single mum household, and he talks of what he learned from the dot-com boom that still informs his entrepreneurial journey. That's next week on Build It, They'll Come. I'd love you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. And please subscribe and share it with your friends and networks. See you next week. 